You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. Though starting a career as a photographer is a challenge, maintaining that career over years and decades has its own set of challenges. To both survive and thrive as a photographer, you have to learn to be flexible, savvy, and adaptive, qualities that today's guest, Michael Lee Stern, certainly possesses. In his latest incarnation as a photographer, he has become a specialist in time-lapse photography that he successfully marketed to many corporate clients throughout Southern California. Photographers are often encouraged to find a niche that they are both good at and passionate about. And Michael appears to have done just that. Enjoy our conversation with Michael Easter. Well, Michael, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a it's a pleasure to have a chance to to finally sit around and and, and talk to you about your work and your career. So so welcome. Thank you, thank you. I know we've talked about it a long time, and by the way, it did take you a long time. So finally, we're here. But I'm very excited to have a nice conversation with you today. It's interesting that you had, you know, a, quite a, a long career. And I think one of the, I think one of the valuable insights that I sort of take away from it is that you've been very adaptive in terms of what you offer as a photographer. And I think that that's become an invaluable skill in order to survive in the business, especially with all the changes that have been occurring over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, Even the last five years. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's begin there because I talk to a lot of photographers who are sort of starting their career, but I think it's just as important to talk about people who have been in their career who are having to sort of change and adapt in order to stay in the business of being photographers. What what do you sort of attribute the importance of being adaptive and, and being malleable and sort of changing not only what you shoot, but how you present yourself? Well, I'm going to go back in time very briefly. Uh, a good friend of mine, when I was in school at Art Center, we were sitting in the parking lot one Saturday afternoon, and he said, you know, man's greatest ability is his ability to adapt. And somehow it was the right thing to say to me at the right time, and that went in and stuck. And I've always kept that at the forefront, adapt or die. And as the business changes... You have to be aware of what's coming down the pipe. You have to have some connections into the world of where you're working and see what's happening and decide that, you know, if you don't go with the flow, if you don't step in and adapt, the river flows right by you. And, and some of the uh, photographers who are of my uh, generation, they're stuck and they want to keep doing things the same way. And it, it's, a, it's a fallacy. Things are always changing. The car business changes. The movie business changes. Your life changes. Change is inevitable. And, and why they think that they can still keep doing the same old thing, the same old way, when the world has advanced you know, way beyond them, it, it really is a head-scratcher. Uh, I, I think I get bored easily. And 
you know, for a long time, I started out as a product photographer. I really enjoyed product photography, and I took on a little bit of architectural work for about 15 years. And after about 20 years of documentation work, architecture, and product photography, and running a studio, I kind of had my fill of it, and I wanted to get out of a studio environment and try something else. Uh, and while I was in my studio environment, I also wanted to come up with a way to be in front of my clients all the time, but not have to shoot all the time. And I added a lab services component to my business. So a lot of times I would get calls from clients to make enlargements or to make slide dupes or to help them with graphics for a presentation. And it kept me at the forefront of their mind. It kept me working, kept me in cash flow, but it wasn't always about photography work, but it was photography centric and photography related. And that was a great way for me to keep my hand in various different pies in the photography industry. Uh, so I've always, I've trained myself to always look and play and see what's coming down the pike and embrace new technologies. And right now, the last three years, I've been almost exclusively time-lapse videos and corporate portraiture. And at this stage of my career, it's a really fun place for me to be at. I get a lot of autonomy. I, I got rid of the studio. I really don't do product photography anymore. And I'm kind of just working on these two areas right now. And to be good at the time-lapse work, I've had to learn how to use Premiere and learn how to use After Effects and learn how to record sound on location and edit it. So it's forced me to take on a whole new set of skills at 30 plus years in the business, I'm, I'm developing a whole new package I can offer my clients. And I do take a lot of online training about search engine optimization and using social media and crafting a mission statement and refining it and crafting a vision statement and refining it. So I'm doing all these things all the time to keep what I'm presenting to the public very fresh. And it takes effort. And it's something I work on usually on Mondays. That's the day devoted to that kind of stuff. And I think the discipline and the, and the uh, knowledge that you have to be adaptive or the world will pass you by. Yeah. It seems that as when we're starting off as photographers, one of the things that's suggested very strongly by many is, is creating a niche for yourself, uh, an area of specialization. Rather than trying to be a generalist that does this and does that, it, it's important to sort of define yourself in one particular genre of photography, even though you may be capable of shooting a, a lot. And and if you've established that and you have a reputation for that kind of photography and that's actually bringing in the business, uh, it can seem a very sort of perilous thing to sort of venture out, either because you've kind of burnt out or you just feel like you want to explore different territory, especially considering there's only a limited number of hours in the day to be able to do that. So, you know, how did you find, what worked for you that allowed you to still maintain that sort of core business that was, that you had, that you had proved that it proved successful Plus, making the time to go out and experiment and try different things and begin to sort of branch out from what you may have been initially known for. You know, I, I'm happy to answer that, but we really have to understand the world was very different back in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, almost anybody can make money in the business. And I, I was mentored by a couple of people. I was very fortunate. And one of the 
the gentleman told me, you know, find a niche that you're really good at and exploit it. And if you're really good at exploiting that niche, the work is going to come in on a very narrow tube, but you're pretty much going to be the recognized expert and the jobs are mostly yours to lose as opposed to yours to win, meaning they've already made the decision they want to buy from you. Now let's work out how that's going to happen. Yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who listen to the show who are in a position where they achieve some modicum of success, right? And they want to branch out to some other things, but it's like, well, I'm my time is so caught up just doing the things that keep a roof over my head and allow me to make the car payment and so on and so forth. Right? You know, how do I possibly? go out there and start branching out into something else because it feels like I have to start completely over. And do right. I really have the time and the energy to be able to do that? So my question to you is how did you find that you managed to to, to handle right. such challenges and be able right. to branch out successfully? Well, uh, I'm really, again, my brother, uh, one of my older brothers gave me a lot of good advice early on. When you make a lot of money, put some of it away immediately and keep being very disciplined about that and keep putting money away. And once you get to about $100,000 saved up, the money starts making money for you instead of you working for the money. And I was very disciplined about that. So when things were really good and I was in my salad days, I put 70 cents of every dollar that came in into the bank. And my wife and I lived on you know, old clothes, you know, lunch meats, and old cars because I was absolutely determined to put enough money away to get me through the stormy seas because the stormy seas are coming. You just don't know when and how long they're going to last. So I built up enough of a bankroll that I could then spend time exploiting other markets and seeing if it was something I wanted to do. A lot of my ideas for what I'd like to tackle as a photographer come from reading the business section of the LA Times. Or I mean, it could be anything, but I just happen to read the L.A. Times a lot. And I've gotten a lot of business from reading stories in the newspaper. And I think that company needs me and I'm going to go and get work from them. And I just put it in my head, whether it plays out like that, uh, you know, who knows how it's going to turn out. But I'm very aggressive and I'm a hustler. I hustle all the time. For instance, I just finished a job. Uh, Madison Square Garden in New York bought the old forum in Inglewood uh, August of 2012. In January of last year, 2013, they started demolishing it to refurbish it, and now it's open as nothing as a pure music venue. And I saw the story in the paper uh, that MSG, Madison Square Garden, had bought the forum, and I reached out to them and said, hey, I'm here in L.A., I love doing construction documentation. I can do some time lapse. Let's talk about how we might work together. And they were so impressed that I reached out to them that half of they were convinced 50% that I was the guy. And then it really became a matter of how we're going to work out the money and the terms. So I went and got that job because I'm really good at documentation and I love documentation, documentary photography as an art form. I love looking at what exists in the real world and trying to find that specific camera position and lighting angles that really brings out what I'm feeling when I look at that scene. Uh, so being very disciplined about putting your money away, even if you're not making enough, you can always put $5 away. And then the next month, maybe put $6 away. You've got to really buckle down and do that. 
And, and you have to believe down to the core of your being that you can do this. I was meant to be a photographer. There's no doubt in my mind. I've been doing it for over 30 years, and it's as fresh now as it was when I first started. So I knew I was on the right path. And, you know, I do believe in karma and things kind of work out, you know, for you when you're in the right place at the right time. Uh, and I just decide that I want to do something and I find the opportunities that fulfill that desire, which means there's a lot of research time, talking to people, going to events, reading, you know, putting yourself out there in the mix. I mean, if you stay in your little hole, nobody knows about you. Uh, so you really have to push out and ring a lot of bells and try a lot of things. And eventually, you know, sometimes just through sheer numbers, things start to work out in your favor. How how much of a role did, you know, face-to-face -face networking play a role in your success as opposed to, you know, social networking, which is the big buzzword? Well, you know, it's funny. When I first started out, I could call somebody up and actually get through to them, and I would actually talk to the decision maker, and sometimes I'd have a decision before the phone call was over. I mean, that's how it used to work way back when. And then, you know, voicemail came into being, and, of course, you know, uh, secretaries or the gatekeepers and they try to filter who gets to talk to the boss and it all started becoming more and more uh, harder to penetrate and a lot more walls and with social media I mean I tweet I have a blog I'm on LinkedIn I have Facebook although I, I think that's more of a toy than anything real but I get 50% of my business comes in through Google searches and 50% of my business comes in from me sensing an opportunity and going out and pursuing it. Once I get somebody on the phone or get to see them face to face, I, I happen to have a particular talent for closing. So I, maybe I'm fortunate in that way, but I've also worked on it. So social media for me doesn't work so well. Uh, going out and seeing people with the power of my voice and making eye contact still seems to work for me the best. Well, let's talk about closing, because that's a, that's a topic I've not talked with anyone on the show before. And there's a real art to it. And I think that that uh, many photographers are very tentative about trying to, to close. And they'll, you know, they'll leave a meeting with, you know, the possibility that they may or may not be hired rather than sort of pressing uh, to get a commitment because they're afraid if they get too, a little too aggressive that they'll lose the opportunity. So how do you how do you sort of walk that line between, you know, being assertive and, and, and not being obnoxious? <laughs> I'm incredibly charming all the time, can't you tell? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, when I walk into a situation, I always believe I'm the right person for the job. And they don't know it yet, but they really need me. And nobody else is going to fulfill the role that they're looking to have filled except me. Whether that's true or not, that's in my mind. And I don't ever walk into a situation where I don't feel that level of confidence. And even if I'm hurting and I need the job, that never comes across. I always want the job. I don't need it. So you really have to be tough mentally and emotionally. And then one of the key things for me, and, and almost any salesman will tell you this, car salesmen and, and the like, uh, but mostly when a sales rep goes to a client's environment, you look immediately around their office. And if they have pictures of their kids, they're family people. If they have sports memorabilia, 
They probably were athletes in, you know, in their younger days. If there's lots of diplomas on the wall, they're proud of their education. If there's, you know, psychological books, you know, it, the problem isn't you, it's me. If there's those kind of books on their bookshelves, they're probably very introspective. You can pick up a ton of clues just by scanning the room. And, you know, when I sit, my arms are open, my legs are uncrossed, I don't put my hand in my mouth, I try to make eye contact, I bring a notebook and I make notes, they see that I'm paying attention, I don't talk a lot, I let them speak, and people are going to buy from people they know and they like and they trust, and this has been going on from day one. And I am generally, I would say probably 90% of the time or better, the most expensive photographer they're going to talk to. But I'm also the one that's going to deliver results, not excuses. And I just have all of this confidence going in. And I do know my numbers. I know what it takes for me to operate my business on a monthly basis. I do know what I need to make on a daily basis. I do know what my production costs are going to be. I do know what kind of margin I want to make. Uh, so I have all this information in my head, and I guarantee, I, and I always put this in writing, if I fail to deliver what you want, then the job is free, or I fix it within 24 hours. I'll redo it, or, or whatever it takes. If it's somehow I'm responsible for your unhappiness, you don't have to pay for the job. Uh, so I put those kinds of guarantees into my paperwork, and it's very businesslike. These are business people. They've been trained to negotiate. They've been trained to speak on the phone. They've been trained to write well. They appreciate somebody who can bring that to that side of the table. It's much easier for a creative person to pretend they're a good business person than it is for a business person to pretend to be creative. Most of them yeah. have all the creativity of a broken pencil and that's why they called you. At least that's what's in my mind. And, and they need help and I'm the guy that can provide that help. Uh, so the confidence, but being polite, and I, I, it may not come across because I'm getting kind of excited about this now, but being a little bit reserved, being a little bit humble, and know that I'm so thrilled that you think I can do the job for you. I want to do the job for you the very best I can. So there's a lot of good vibes that I kind of send out. And all that together uh, really helps me seal, you know, probably 65 to 70% of my deals. You know, one of the things that I, I learned when I had to start selling was um, the, the act of how valuable the act of listening is. And, um, you know, when they start asking me questions, I usually turn it around and start asking them questions, you know, in terms of what they're doing, what their hopes for, you know, why they individually are doing this kind of work. And I get that information and I process it in my head. And then when I start telling them in terms of what I have to offer them, I'm often injecting some of the information that, that they provided me during the initial conversation. Right. You know, and this, that, that brings a certain amount of comfort to them. And that's a good thing. Yeah, because it's like the, I feel like we, they walk away from the meeting feeling like this guy gets it. Rather than someone right. just trying to sell them, this is what we do, blah, 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 without any really appreciation for, you know, what the client's reasons or, or desires or needs are on, on a sort of personal level, not just in terms of a, an assignment level. And, and I think if you can sort of tap into that, you have an advantage over someone who's just going to come in there, you know, with a, you know, glorified keynote presentation and, you know, a nice suit who may not necessarily be able to connect to them in a, in a particular way. 
Right. And, and you want to sell without selling. When I was providing lab services, products, prints, and slides, and transparencies, that was a commodity and an object that I could put a specific unit price on, and I could sell that. But when you're talking about a photographic image that at this point in time doesn't even exist, and you got to pick the camera and the lens and the camera settings and the lighting angles and the color and the env- you know you got to create everything from scratch. You really can't sell that any other way other than as a confidence boost and listening to the client and getting them to realize that you hear what they're saying and you understand them. That you have to create a comfort level as opposed to selling them. And once you get that comfort level, then it's pretty much it's pretty easy at that point to start talking numbers. But you do have to know your numbers as as I said earlier. Yeah. Well, you've done a good number of corporate portraits, and um, that, that has its own set of challenges because you're often dealing with people who are not accustomed to being in front of the camera, unlike you know maybe celebrities, and you know they really don't want to be there. They're doing it more out of out of obligation, but they still have this expectation that you're going to make them look good, even though they're inside. They're feeling like like crap, and they can't wait to get to. Get away from being in front of your camera. So, what 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 kind of skills have you developed to really sort of bring out the best um, in those people? Because we all hear about you know how to light you know the background and the subject, but really when it comes down to it, it's it's what you're able to elicit from your subject that really makes or breaks a photograph. So, what what are some of the things that you practice with these specific kinds of clients? that have helped you make photographs that, that both you and and they are happy with? It's often uh, situation-specific, but some of the things I do over the years is I have light refreshments prepared. I'll have music queued up. But mostly, I ask them, you know, do you enjoy the work you do? And usually it's a yes, and then I engage them. So how did you get started? Did you go to college? Did you train for something else and you had an epiphany and now you're doing this? I mean, looking at your surroundings, you know, things like well, working out for you, you know, do you mind talking about your story? And once you get them engaged, you really, then I listen. And if they say something that I can relate to in my life, then I can possibly bring that around as a comment and we can have a little bit of a connection. I mean, it's almost like courtship. It's a very small, narrow, limited window but I'm trying to make a connection with them, and I honor what they're doing. I appreciate that they've asked me to do these pictures, and I'm impressed that they're working in the way that they work. And you just try to engage them in conversation. I use a lot of humor. I, I, I'm very, very confident on the, on the photography end. So, you know, the setup is there, and it, it, the picture is going to happen at some point. Uh, and once in the thousands of corporate portraits that I've done in my career, only one time did I fail to connect with a person. And I worked on that guy for about 40 minutes and he just was going to be an SOV no matter what I did. And finally, after 40 minutes, I said, okay, you know, thank you for your time. I think we're done here. And and I, I failed in that I didn't get the kind of picture that I wanted to get but I gave it the college try, and, um, you know, I figure one out of thousands isn't a bad record to have, so mm. I'll live with it. 
Well, tell me how you got into the time lapse, because that's something you've been doing a lot of recently. <laughs> yes, I have. That you know, that's a that's a fascinating uh, type of photography. I mean, I've 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 never dabbled in it, but I've watched other people do similar work in online. And uh, you know, tell me what that is for you. Let's talk about some of the challenges and obstacles that you have to face in order to do that effectively. Well, yeah, so time lapse. Uh, I was teaching at Brooks Institute, uh, started in 2003 and ended in 2009. And in 2003, one of my fellow adjunct faculty was showing me some time lapse work he was doing. And at the time, I was doing a little bit of fireworks time lapse, uh, but really just experimenting with taking a lot of pictures and making you know, a picture-after-picture picture movie. I wasn't really totally aware of what the potential was. But I remember seeing as a kid at Disneyland on Main Street in the Mr. Lincoln, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln Theater, there was a film running. Disneyland was built in a year and a day. And it was a time-lapse of Sleeping Beauty's castle being built one frame at a time over the course of 366 days. And I remember as an eight or nine year old kid just being fascinated by that. So it's always been something on my mind. And in uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, when everybody was having a hard time and I was looking for work and things were a little bit thin, I spent a lot of time optimizing my website for local search results. And this is one of the things, if I can just digress for just a moment, most photographers make a big mistake when they're optimizing their website. They want to optimize for the world. They want to optimize if they're in LA, they want to optimize for work out of San Francisco or Chicago or New York. And most people who work for themselves, a bulk of your work is going to come within about a 10 or 15 mile radius of where you live. And so I optimize for very local searching and put in a lot of blog posts and put in a lot of stuff about time lapse and the Huntington Botanical Gardens here in San Marino, California, happened to be looking for somebody in 2011, and they put in local search results, and only one name popped up, which was mine, and I walked in as the recognized authority and the expert, and I've been working with them. I'm currently editing my 7th, 8th, and ninth films for them, uh, so they have really uh, opened the floodgates for me. And I, I currently have about 300,000 pictures in their archive that I've shot for them that I've been editing into films. Uh, but as I've gotten more time-lapse work and more time-lapse work has been posted online, more uh, government entities and companies have been calling me to do time-lapse work. And I just got a big project in about uh, an hour ago. Uh, to do a, a construction demolition down in Long Beach, and it's going to be a 30-day shoot. Uh, so the work, I'm I, I, I working very hard to become known as the time-lapse guy, and there are, there are many, many people out there doing a lot of time-lapse and a lot of really beautiful you know, sunsets and Milky Way shots, and those are really great and pretty, but on a practical level, Construction documentation time lapse is really big, and there's a lot of ways to monetize the construction industry in terms of providing time lapse. Uh, but there's all other kinds of ways to use time lapse, document, 
you know, the setting sun behind a golf course and have it run as a 10 second clip on the golf course website. You know, there's all kinds of ways to use time lapse. And I invested heavily last year in motion control systems. So I'm not only taking a picture every 10 seconds or every three minutes or whatever the interval might be, but I'm also moving the camera in between photographs. So you get this beautiful sliding motion left to right up and down or in and out as the time-lapse sequence is unfolding and it adds this wonderful dynamic quality to the time-lapse and I'm having the time of my life right now I have multiple projects going and I have nine camera systems and terabytes and terabytes of storage space and I'm basically making movies it's it, it's more dynamic than still photographs and less costly than real filmmaking. It's a great hybrid of I'm able to combine my passion and love for still photographs with the cinematic tools of the trade and techniques of movie making. And I'm so excited to be at this stage of my career and have all this amazing technology available to take what's in my head, to help me take what's in my head and put it out there for the world to see and enjoy. And it, it, it's so exciting. Some, some nights I can't wait to get tired so I can go to sleep and get up early and get on the next project. I mean, I'm that thrilled with it. And I find it just a fascinating topic. Well, well, tell me about some of the tools that you have to to use on there. Am I thinking, you know, you have, of course, you have to have ample, ample power to keep the camera going for extended periods of time. But, you right. know, what are the, what are some of the other considerations that you have to make in terms of, you know, planting a camera in a fixed position for days, weeks, or maybe even months? Right. Well, uh, for those cameras that are out there long term, they're in custom made weatherproof housings that have uh, a camera on a track uh, so I can keep registration perfect if I have to remove the camera for some reason. There's an intervalometer in there that's attached to the camera that sets the shutter off at predetermined intervals. And then in my case, I'm lucky that I'm able to work with clients that can provide me with power so my cameras are plugged in and running on AC power. And sometimes, I think the, to date, the longest extension cord I've used is 375 feet. Wow. Uh, and uh, so those are on posts that are stuck in the ground. They're about buried about three feet into the earth, and they're packed down with rocks. And uh, they're five inches square posts, and there's about seven or eight feet sticking above the ground. And then on top of that is a bracket that the camera housing is mounted to. And I go out there once a week, you know, a couple times a week, depends on my schedule to make sure it's working and, you know, just check on it. There's a, I use special glass filters in the housing that uh, moisture, water, fog doesn't leave any kind of water droplets. It just sheens right off. So I never have to worry about, you know, water stains. It's like a $200 filter. It's nuts what it costs, but it, it certainly works in the field. Uh, when I go out on a daily basis and I have to plant cameras for uh, specific things that might be happening on a site, uh, wrapping the camera in a plastic bag to keep dust down, uh, putting up a, a sun shield in case the sun's going to pound on the camera body for three or four hours, I want to try to keep the heat down. I also have to keep it in a spot where the construction guys aren't going to run it over or knock it. 
And that's always a consideration. I, I, I make a great effort to get to know the job supervisors and ask what the schedule is and say, hey, if I put a camera over here, would that work? And they say, well, you know, we're going to have a thing over there in about an hour. Unless you're going to stick around, it's probably going to get hit. You know, so I have to work in concert with the construction crew. So placement is a big consideration. Uh, and then I have what's called a Syrup Genie. It's a company in New Zealand, S-Y-R-P. And their signature product is a Genie. It's basically a very powerful drive motor that allows you to pan the camera left or right or vertically up or down or down or up. And it's basically just this monstrous motor, very powerful. Uh, you can also have a modifier on there that allows it, if you set it on a skateboard and you use the modifier, you can make it a, a, a long dolly track if you want. You can do dolly shots with it. Uh, I also use what's called the Little Mule, uh, made by a guy here in California, Warren Henderson. And it is a little, it's like a plate with wheels on it and a very powerful drive motor that runs at 6 RPMs maximum. And I can put a camera on a monopod on there, uh, three feet high, two feet high, a foot high, whatever I determine. And with a, a, a lithium-ion battery or a lead-acid battery, I can run this thing around corners. I can go up inclines. I can have it run for 100 yards straight if I want. It, it, it runs on its own little wheels, so you don't need a dolly track, which is the traditional way to move a camera. But speaking to that, I also have a dynamic perception stage zero dolly, which is a six-foot-long rail that I have their sled on it. But on top of that, I put what's called a TB3. It's, it's made by a company in San Francisco called Emotimo. And this thing pans and tilts the camera, but it also has an auxiliary motor that can drive the sled. So the TB3, TB the camera's on top of the TB3, the TB3's on top of the sled, the sled's connected to the rail, and I can, I can, and I can have the camera sliding back and forth on the rail as the camera is tilting and panning while it's shooting a time-lapse sequence. Or any of these can be also used for real-time video. So I invested about $15,000 last year in all this technology, and I'm very committed to it, and it, it adds such a, uh, a value and a quality to the work, and that's why I believe partly why my phone keeps ringing, because the work I do is very engaging to the viewer, and the clients are very happy. Well, how, you know, as you transitioned into doing more of this work, how did you, fec how did you figure out pricing? Because, you, you know, you're, you're delivering a final product that you know, on the uh, website is probably not going to run for very long. Or if it's incorporated into a video, it'll probably be on for only a certain number of seconds. But there's also all this labor that's involved in, in being able to deliver, you know, whatever, whatever duration the, the final piece that they use uh, is. Yep. So how did you sort of come to sort of figure out what would be a fair price for you considering all that's involved on your end to produce it and also, you know, so the needs or the limitations of budgets that, that the client is, is stipulating yep. that, that you have to meet? Well, when I figure that out, I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that is really a tough question. And I would say that for every hour I bill, I probably put in three extra hours. So if I looked at it, if I looked at it strictly as a per hour charge versus the labor I put in, I would probably cry. 
but I, I've arrived at a number that when I have a, if I sink a post into the ground and I put one of my weatherproof housing units on there, it's X thousands of dollars a month for that camera. And that includes all the post-production and the licensing. And I, I for, you know, it's not so much um, the amount I'm getting paid. It's, well, no, it, the amount matters. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say, I want to come up with a price that doesn't scare off the client, pays me enough to indulge my fantasy. And I get enough money per camera when it's on a post that the material it generates and the time it takes me to edit it, even if I put in more time, I'm going to get a marketing piece out of it. I'm still going to get paid. And it's, it's uh, enough remuneration that if I wanted to indulge and just work the entire month on that project, I could do so. It, it, it's really hard. You know, we want a 30-second piece and we want to put it on our website. Well, okay, so if it's on your website, it's $500, it's $50 a second, and that's, I think, $1,500. Well, that's not really enough money if you're shooting it from scratch. If it's in your library and it already exists, then maybe you can charge by the second. But when you're doing a complete story and you're adding titles and you're adding music and you're adding sound effects... You know, it's, it's really hard. Well, I think that this is going to take me 25 hours, and my rate is 125 an hour. You know, you could come up with it like that. And some projects, I, I can say, you know, I'll do this for 20 hours at this much per hour. Uh, I, I, it's, it's really difficult because I, I did a job uh, a few weeks ago, and... In six hours, I shot 11,000 pictures. And I way overshot because I wanted to have enough content to pull out those little gems that only show up if you have enough content. You know, if you're shooting every four or five seconds, you're going to get one of those Henri Cartier-Bresson decisive moment, the perfect picture that mm -hmm. you can then do a frame hold on and really add a quality to the time lapse. You don't get that if you're shooting every 30 seconds when you're in the kind of environment that I was shooting in. Um, and... You, I, I come up with a number that gets me to do the job with a smile on my face and not grinding my teeth. Uh, time lapse is probably the most difficult thing for me to price because you have pre-production, you have production and post-production. So on this job today, I'm going down to the location to look it over. I have three days of photography and I'll probably have to go to the site about 10 times during that month to deal with daily cameras. And then post-production is probably going to take me a month. And I, and I got to figure out, you know, I probably have 300 hours into this production. So I'm going to try to get, I mean, out the door, it's $30,000. Am I going to get that? I don't know yet. And, and I'm only saying numbers, uh, Ibrian X, not to brag about anything, but try to give your listeners a realistic idea of what things should cost. And if I, get, if I can get 15000 for this job... I would be very satisfied with it because it's a high-profile job, and I will give up the money that I think it could be to get access to this market. And I'm still getting paid a pretty penny for a month's worth of work. 
uh, two months worth of work because I figured the post-production as well. So it, it, you know, what I said earlier, I'm kind of a good closer. I'm also pretty good at estimating and kind of having a feel for what this should go for. I've talked with a lot of my uh, colleagues in the business, and you know, they they agree with some of the numbers I come up with for the most part. They agree with the numbers I come up with for the most part, and uh, it, it's it. This is a little bit more art than science when it comes to time lapse. If you have a reputation, it's a little bit easier. If you don't have a reputation, you kind of have to get another way to get paid in terms of I'm getting not getting the money I want, but I'm getting access to a high profile market or I'm not getting paid the money I want, but I'm getting a nice piece that I can optimize and will show up in search engines. And that's like marketing dollars I don't have to spend because I'm getting paid to make the piece. So you have to be flexible in how you view the project. It can't just be here's the money I'm going to get because you will always be chasing the money and as opposed to the work. Chase the work you love and the money will flow in. If you just chase the money, that's a short-term solution to a long-term career and that generally generally leads to burnout in my estimation. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the projects on your website that I wanted to talk to you about is very different from the time lapse and the headshots and that's your remnant series. And, Remnants, yes. Yeah, it is, tell me about that. There's also some really beautiful photographs. And are, are they part of a personal project or were they a commissioned uh, gig? Tell me more about those. Well, I'm 58 years old right now, and I've been living with a chronic disease since I was 15. And the disease necessitated an operation that uh, the doctors misled myself and my family about the seriousness of the problem. And apparently, according to the doctor, when I woke up, a, a three-hour operation ran about 12 hours. And when I woke up in the recovery room, the first thing the doctor said to me was, I'm so glad you woke up. You lost so much blood in there, I thought I'd lost you. And I was 15 years old and told that I'd almost died. Wow. And that really blew my mind. And I was so pissed off at authority figures and that I was lied to and I've I've been having to deal with this illness issue for many many years and I have my complete medical records with me so when I I don't go around as to many specialists now but I was going to very specialists I would just bring my medical record with me to save them the trouble of trying to get the x-rays and the MRI sent over to them and as I had all these x-rays of my body in various states of deterioration and and MRIs and all these CAT scans, I started scanning them on a scanner and making art out of them as a as a as a, a, a therapeutic way for me to process the anger at the establishment and the anger at having a failing body, a body that was going to preclude me from being a professional athlete. Forget the fact that I didn't have the talent to be an athlete. <laughs> I thought I was going to be one. And this illness short-circuited me, and I was really uh, upset about it, and it was very cathartic to turn my pain into art. You know, where have we heard that before? Almost every comic turns his pain into art, right? Uh, and I did a series called Bone Daddy, and I thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and once these pictures hit the market, I am going to be counting my money. And yeah, that worked out really well. Uh, but what that led to was... I started finding detritus, decaying organic material, very fascinating because a lot of people just take 
dead birds and bits of dust on the ground and dried leaves and sweep them up because they're trash. But there's something really beautiful about them if you abstract them out of context. So I started scanning all of these objects that I would find, and that's what led to remnants. And I have about 60 or 70 pieces in the collection, and I have boxes of stuff here waiting to be scanned. Uh, but it served a very good purpose for me from roughly 2002 to about, I think, 20. I think I made a piece last year, but it, it, it's, I don't feel the need to keep doing it. I have a nice body of work. I've shown the work. I've sold some of the work. Uh, it does remind me uh, that, I, that I can be self-healing, that I do care for myself. So it represents uh, a lot of stuff for me. Uh, in a positive way, and you're right; they're very pretty to look at. But they're not done with a photog with a photo with a camera to, with a photographer. They're all done on a flatbed scanner. And I actually have a book that I wrote called "Build a Better Photograph" that came out in 2009, and I devote a whole chapter on the process I use for scanning these remnants. Oh, that's and fascinating! I never would have thought that they were done on a scanner. Yes. Well, the great thing is with the scanner, if the object is the right size and generally, you know, about half the size of a penny is about the smallest you can go. When you blow it up, sometimes as much as 2000 percent, something smaller than half a penny starts to get fuzzy, like like the the discarded claw of a cat doesn't really have the resolution the scanner doesn't have the resolution to really show something that small when you blow it up 2,000%. But half a penny size is about the smallest. And when you take something like the, the leg of a bird and blow it up 2,000%, it looks like it's the claw of a meat-eating you know, velocirap velociraptor and it's a sparrow or a house finch. But when you blow it up that big, it looks like you know some critter coming from the deep, dark sea or something. And I love you know, playing with the size relationships and taking things out of context. So it was a great series, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I did it, but it, it's kind of gotten on the back burner these days. Yeah, I think it serves as a great counterpoint to the other work that you're doing. Yes, well, I think, you know, you have to do something personal, and you have to let the world know that you do something personal. You can't just be about the commercial work and the commission work. Clients want to see that you have these other facets to you, and that's why I have it online. And sometimes I post them on my about page on my site. I sometimes show commercial work. I sometimes show personal work. But I change those pictures every 30 days. So I do get them out in the public every so often. Well, that's, I'm glad that you are because I think it's really important for photographers to, you know, just show some of the stuff that, that's very personal that they really care about. Uh, and sometimes, in, as in your case, I think it really complements the work that you're doing with the time lapse and with the portraits and the construction documentation. It gives, I think it's really important for photographers to reveal sort of a personal side of themselves in their work rather than it just, just strictly being business all the time because uh, it helps to differentiate you from the, the competition in a way. And, and it helps to flesh out your personality. It helps to flesh out your body of work. I think you have to have all those components that you just mentioned. And people want to do business with real people. And if you're all business all the time, which I was for a long time, uh, that will get you to a certain spot. But I, I did burn out a bit on that. And I, I'm at a certain age now where uh, I'm not really trying to make my stamp on the world. You know, I, I pretty much have my 
my finances in order, and I'm doing the work that I want to do that supports how I feel about things. I, I really love the documentary film. I love documentary photography. I want to do a body of work that that will last for years in that I love looking at old photographs. I love Ken Burns' work, mainly because he gets these archival historical documents that I've never seen. You know, a, a well-made, a well-crafted document, a documentary photograph is like hearing your favorite song. It immediately puts you in a place and moment in your life. And the power of photography that's what it is for me. A good photograph will transport you somewhere. And whether you self-reflect or think about something, you know, in, with someone else on, in your life or, or whatever it does for you, if a good, when a good, when a photograph triggers uh, an emotion, in my view, it's a really good picture. And I try to have my work trigger emotions. And, and that means that I'm all in when I do the work. One of the reasons why uh, the Huntington is such a great client for me is they said to me, you're the pro, you make all the decisions, you make the field commands, and you send us the work, and if we don't like it, you know, we'll let you know. Otherwise, you know, go for it. Do what you think is right. And what a great opportunity. And because they've given me that much trust and they believe in my talent that much, I am all in. I am out there in the morning at 7 when the crews show up. I go out there sometimes during the day just to see what the progress is. I talk to the project people. I find out what they're doing. I'm always thinking about camera positions. What's the best way to render this particular thing they're doing? And how does it fit into the movie? Where does it go into the movie? What do I have to do so it has something to cut into? I am not just phoning it in. I am totally and fully invested in everything I do. And I think that is one of the key ingredients. If, when it becomes drudgery, you have to evaluate, are you doing the right thing? But I, I'm just not at that point, and I don't foresee myself ever getting to that point. I love what I do. I love light. I see visions in my head. It is who I am. It is what I do. It's the greatest thing that, I, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky, but I also work very hard at it. So it's a great combination of that. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I asked them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, some, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Okay. So you all have to look up a guy named Jeff Frost, J-E-F-F-F-R-O-S-T. He does fine art time-lapse film, and he's probably the craziest guy I've ever met. Uh, I think he's in his middle 30s. Uh, I was speaking at a uh, L.A. digital imaging group monthly meeting, and they called at the last minute and asked if, if I would mind if this other guy named Jeff Ross spoke at the same time I did. And I said, sure, why not? And I do commercial time-lapse work. He does fine art time-lapse work. Very different aesthetics. And his vision is he's very, very specific and focused, incredibly talented, and a very uh, thoughtful, smart, well-read guy. And his time-lapse work is mind-boggling. Uh, I actually volunteered in January of 2013. We spent four nights at the Linda Vista Hospital in Boyle Heights. And it's, an, it's an abandoned hospital. 
uh, that was built by the railroad way back in the day to take care of the families of railroad railroad workers. And we spent four nights in this basically abandoned, haunted hospital shooting time-lapse. And uh, it was a fascinating process to go through. I learned a lot from him about motion control and just his aesthetic, which I'm applying some of those things today. But uh, he's a real good guy, and you know we're friends. But uh, Jeff Frost, uh, his work is amazing, and and you you know he might be someone to have on the show at some point. Well, I look forward to checking out his work. Yeah. So, where can people go to find out more about you and everything that you do? The universe, baby. <laughs> uh, my website is buildabetterphotograph.com. And uh, it's spelled just like it sounds. There's no fancy spelling. And uh, my blog is on there. There's links there to my LinkedIn profile. And uh, I have a lot of tutorials and educational information on SlideShare. I have a Vimeo channel, a YouTube channel. Uh, most of my time-lapse work is on the site itself, so you don't have to go out to Vimeo if you don't want. But that's the place to find me. Well, great. And, and if anybody is interested in the book, uh, you can buy it on Amazon or you can buy it from me directly either way. I also have a book on remnants from Blurb, and there's a link uh, under the About Me. or on, what, I think it's called About Me. It's on the far left side of the homepage, but the bl- I, did, I did do a book on remnants, and it's for sale on Blurb, and I've sold a few, but not many, but, but it's a really nice book, really pretty. Oh, Michael, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really enjoyed having the chance to finally sit down and uh, have a conversation with you and record it and share it with, uh, with my audience, so thank yeah, you, you know, for the time. You're very welcome, Iberianx. Uh, it it's, was a pleasure, and I hope my excitement and enthusiasm came through because it's really an exciting field to be in, and I'm just thrilled and grateful that I've been able to make a living as a photographer. I've been able to provide for my family, and, and it's really just a super feeling. So thank you for your time as well. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.